from Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever I go to Kroger with my son, I do everything I can to avoid the ice cream aisle. And it's actually not because of my son's love of ice cream, although that is very real. It's actually because at the end of the ice cream aisle is the Hot Wheels display. (laughs) And my son has taken it upon himself to own the world's biggest collection of Hot Wheels. That is the yoke that he is willing to bear for the good of the world. Now, it always goes the same way. In the event that we do have to go by the Hot Wheels display, he runs over, he sees it, runs over, grabs the Hot Wheel off the hook, and then he comes over to me and says, I want to buy it. And I say, no, buddy, not today. And then he says, but I want it. And so that's supposed to make me just throw cash at him, you know? And then I say, no, pal, not today, all right? And then he busts out the big guns and he goes, but I need it. Just a little bit. I need it. Now, in that moment, he does not remember that he has an entire fleet of Hot Wheels littering my living room floor at home, nor does he think through the logic of the fact that within an hour, he will no longer care about said Hot Wheels and he will move on to something else. Now, in that moment, his life comes down to whether or not he is in possession of a 99-cent piece of plastic. Now, we all know every child does this, right? But we do as well as adults. We do the same thing. It's just that through children, we can see sin in its simplicity. It's through our children, we recognize that the first words that sin actually learns how to say is, I want that. I need that. I have to have it. That is, in fact, how we got into this whole mess in the first place. We may outgrow our love of Hot Wheels, but we never outgrow those words. And so today, as we uh, finish up the book of Philippians, Paul ends his letter by talking about contentment. 
Contentment is not an issue we talk about very much in the church. You know, when was the last time you heard somebody say that they had the prayer request of contentment? When was the last time you prayed for contentment for yourself? I'm sure we'd all admit that contentment is a good thing, but I don't think that we think about it in terms of contentment being vital to our walk with the Lord Jesus. That contentment is vital to our experience of him, and that's exactly what Paul would say today. That for him it is essential, so much so that contentment is central to his experience of the Lord Jesus. So that's our question this morning, is why is contentment so central? Why is it so important in our experience of the Lord Jesus? So very simply today, we'll look at two things. The first is the call of contentment, and the second is the secret of contentment. The call and the secret. So first up is the call. When Paul starts in verse 10, he does so by thanking and showing gratitude for the Philippians' care for him while he is in prison. They did, after all, send Epaphroditus with their gifts, eight, you know, eight months' journey, an 800-mile journey to Philippi, or to Rome, to see Paul. And so then, in verse 11, we see this call of contentment. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So there it is. In whatever situation, I am to be content. Now, if we paraphrase that, he's saying that he's learned that his life is not to be driven by his immediate sense of need. His life and his welfare is not to be driven by what he does or doesn't have. Instead, in all things, in whatever situation, he's called to be content. And again, that's strong words, that's strong language coming from a man who's sitting in prison, most likely eating one meal a day, sleeping on a floor, in chains. And contentment's hard. We would all say that. And Paul would be the first to admit it himself. Look at verse 11. He says, again, he says, he's learned in whatever situation he's to be content. He's learned. And that word for learned is a verb that's a, a specific verb that's used to describe what one learns through a discipleship relationship, what one learns from following a teacher but one learns from following a rabbi. He's saying that he has learned in his discipleship of the Lord Jesus that he is to be content. It's not something that he magically woke up with. It's not something that he just puts on one day. It was something he had to learn that is essential to his faith. He had to put the pieces together and learn that his life was not to be lived in a way that was driven by every desire, every whim and every fancy, but instead to be driven by his pursuit of Jesus. And to understand how he came to learn this, I think we have to read between the lines a little bit and consider the opposite of contentment, which is what the Bible calls coveting. And from the get-go, God has a lot to say about coveting. When God rescues Israel from Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and the first thing he does is give them the Ten Commandments. Now, when we think about the Ten Commandments, it's important to think about uh, the Ten Commandments is more than just God giving Israel some rules to follow. This is not just a list of what it means to be nice people. What God is doing in giving them the Ten Commandments is laying the groundwork for what it looks like to be His people, to belong to Him, to have a relationship with Him, to be set apart 
from the world to live for his purposes and to live for his work. And just based off the first commandment alone, we recognize this is more than about niceness and being good folk. It's what is it? The first command is you shall have no other gods before me. And then we get to the 10th commandment on the other end, which is you shall not covet. Now, again, it's easy to think that, you know, that as the Ten Commandments go on, each of the commandments gets, you know, less and less important, as though you finally get to the Tenth Commandment, and it's just a little baby sin, you know, that God kind of threw in there. It's like, here's one more, don't covet. But it's not the case. If you look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, you have the First Commandment, and then you have the Tenth. If you consider it in that light, or in this light, it's the light of worship, is that the Ten Commandments begin and end with worship. And so they're bookended by two pillars that anyone that wants to build a life of worship, it's built upon. The first one's obvious. You shall have no other gods before me. God alone receives our worship because he alone is our source of satisfaction, provision, life, goodness, our creator. God is to be the most important thing. But the second pillar on the other end is you shall not covet. And it's just as important. Why? Because it's in coveting that we say, no, actually, that's the most important thing. Actually, that's what's really important. This is what I really need. This is what I really want. I have to have that. I need that person's validation. I need that house. I need that person's attention. I need that money. I need that vacation. I need my life to look at and in this way. I need to possess that. I want it. I need it. I have to have it. And when the Bible talks about coveting, it's more than just simply a, a harmless desire of wanting something. Like my car is breaking down and I need a new one. That's not really coveting. It's when you feel that need, that impulse, that something about you will be complete when you have it. Life will be better once you possess it. And when you start to covet, worship immediately follows because it starts absorbing your time, your energy, your money, in order to possess whatever it is that you feel that you need. Coveting is just simply the great flip-flop where we take the creator and we trade him for the creation and we say, this is the most important thing. We throw the best of our resources at it. We throw our first fruits at it. We make time for it. We make it a priority. And it starts to occupy that space in the heart that God says, that space is for me and for me alone. So in the end, coveting is nothing more than misplaced worship that just drives us away from God. So in that light, contentment is necessary if we want to experience the Lord Jesus. And Paul is considering not only just these Old Testament commands, but now what we have in Christ. So when Paul talks about learning to be content in every, every situation, it's because Christ is in every situation with him. Whether he has a little, whether he has a lot. So will he first think of Christ, or will he think of something else? And he's very aware of the heart's inclination to covet. And how in the end it just distracts us away from pursuing Christ. You know, remember what Paul already said in chapter 3, that despite everything he's lost for the sake of Christ, nothing compares to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. 
So right there is the real challenge of contentment, is that how can we come to know the surpassing worth of Christ if we always feel like something else surpasses Christ's worth? If we always move towards something else, want something else, and we always want more of that, instead of our first recognition being that I need more of Christ. And so the call of contentment in the end is about recognizing where real satisfaction is found. That's the call. Secondly, Paul talks about the secret of contentment. Now that sounds like a title for a cheap self-help book, but that's actually the language that he uses. Because Paul is very intentional in his uh, use of language in this passage. So there's two words here that had a lot of baggage in Paul's day that's really lost on us. And so these two words, the first one is content in verse 11, and the second word is secret in verse 12. And both of those words are only used once in the entire New Testament. We call it the hapax legomena, words spoken once. And so whenever Paul uses these words, it's for a very particular purpose. And like I said, both of these words had a lot of baggage because they were, they were words that were used by the Stoics, which was a very influential school of thought in this time and place. Socrates was a Stoic. And what Stoicism taught was that the true pathway to life, the true secret of the good life, was in finding contentment. And the way you found contentment was being reconciled to your circumstances. So it meant that you weren't at war with your circumstances. You weren't at war with your situation in life. And so if you wanted that real secret and you wanted to experience contentment, the way you did that was by being reconciled to your circumstances. And the way that you were reconciled to your circumstances was that you learned to master your desires. You learned to master your fears. You learn to master your impulses. You learn to suppress them. You learn to overpower them, to overcome them. Why? So that you can just accept your situation for what it is. Because after all, we can do very little to change it. And so contentment will come when you stop fighting and you resign yourself to whatever fate throws your way and you master your desires. So in summary... The way that you handle everything out here is by being strong in here. Now, most of the time, in a lot of ways, that, passes, that still passes for Christianity in our day. How so? Well, we're not Stoics, but we tend to operate in the same way. So, in the context of contentment, we say, you know, okay, I need to, I need, I'm called to be content, so how am I going to do it? I'm going to be strong. I'm going to resist those desires. I'm going to start standing firm against those impulses for the things I know I shouldn't have or the things I know I shouldn't pursue or the things I know I don't need. I'm going to stand strong and overcome my desires, and then I will be content. And Paul just says, yeah, that doesn't work, and it will never work. Even though he's using stoic language here, he's completely saying the opposite of what they would say. He's using their language to push back against them and say, I know real contentment. And I actually know the real secret. And what he says is that contentment begins only when you first learn that mastering your desires is completely impossible. It's the opposite. 
It's not learning to master your desires to experience contentment. Paul says, no, it's not the secret. Really, it comes down to you recognizing who and what you are. You will never, ever be content until you learn that your, mass, your desires cannot be mastered. How so? Well, look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A brief aside, that is the most abused verse in the entire Bible. It has been officially left on the side of the road to die. I'm, I'm not, there's Babylon B articles about it, about how ridiculous it is. It is not about scoring touchdowns, nor does it belong on your ridiculous TV or tennis shoe line from Nike. Anyways, back to the sermon. Now, it's important for us to notice uh, what Paul does not say. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I know how to be brought low. I've learned the secret of facing hunger and need. We might expect him to say that when he talks about contentment, but he doesn't. It's because our default when we think about contentment is we generally think about it being an issue whenever we have need. Whenever we feel that we have too little or in destitution, in desperate situations, that's when contentment begins to be the most important issue. That's when it comes up. And Paul says, no, it's actually a much, much bigger issue. Notice what he says. He says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. So what that means is our question really is then, why does Paul talk about needing strength and abundance? Why would someone need strength and abundance? Well, again, it's because Paul knows that we can never master our desires. Think about it this way. Last year, during the canoe trip, I checked my phone and my friend from college had sent me a text. And he said, hey, did you hear about Anthony Bourdain? He passed away last night. And I was, I was, I was shocked, because he knows I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan. I couldn't believe it. And so I jumped online, and I saw indeed that he had passed, and it was of his own choosing, in a luxury hotel in Paris. I was floored. I couldn't believe it. And if you don't know who Anthony Bourdain is, he was a chef in New York City that turned celebrity. And he traveled. He had multiple television shows and written multiple books, and he would travel all over the world showing the local culture, you know, eating at the finest restaurants, eating all the best food, getting a sense of every culture, each of the situations that people faced all over the world, and, you know, offering, you know, insightful social commentary from his perspective. And my friend knew that I was a huge fan because he used to live with me and have to deal with the fact that I'd watch no reservations every week. So I'm, you know, you could have dinner with three people. Go. Well, for me, Jesus, Johnny Cash, Anthony Bourdain, right there. So hearing of his passing, I took it really hard. And I remember sitting at the, on the side of the river just talking with Jake Abbott. And we sat there and we kept just thinking, just how, admitting how shocked we were like him of all people, after all that he saw of the world, man, didn't that guy have it all? And we still were shocked, and we realized that 
even though we know this world can't satisfy, don't we still cling to the belief that it can? And so when we see somebody like him go out the way that he did, it shocks us. You know, he lived my dream job. You know, he traveled to almost every country in the world, eating at the finest restaurants, the finest food from the finest chefs, eating in all the back alley barbecues, all the local favorites. He never paid for a meal. He sat with presidents, peasant farmers, a world-renowned speaker, best-selling author. At the top of his career, he saw and experienced and tasted everything this world had to offer, but he was still so unsatisfied. All of that was still not enough to face the next day. Why? Because he did not have strength in his abundance. He did not have a strength to face the fact that you can experience the best this world has to offer and still want more. You can have everything and still feel like you have nothing. Jim Carrey had a great quote. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of just so that they can see that it's not the answer. And Paul talks about needing strength in abundance because he knows the depth of desire in the human heart. How even in plenty and abundance, we will want more and more and more. How when we have little, we will want more. And then when we get more, we will realize it's not enough. And sooner or later, we need strength when we recognize that our desires will exhaust the resources of this world. So what's the secret? Well, it begins with the recognition that the desires of our hearts can never be mastered. Why? It's because they're actually designed to never be satisfied. Ever. For all eternity. To want more. Which means that the secret to contentment is not about mastering your desires. It's about knowing where to place them. What you need is something that can meet your never-ending desire for more. And Paul says it is only in the eternal, infinite, surpassing worth of Christ our Lord in whose hands are pleasures evermore. Only he can stand before you and satisfy your infinite desire for more and not blink. He is a resource that never runs dry. So this week, when you feel your heart say, I want that, I need that, I have to have it, well, remember that Jesus died to be your Savior, but he also died to be your satisfaction. And everything else compared to him in this world is just a 99-cent piece of plastic. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we often trade the creation for our Creator. We trust that what Paul is offering to us is true wisdom. The true secret to life is that all of our desires, all of our hopes, all of our satisfaction that we crave can only be found in you. And it's only because you were willing to humble yourself, step off your throne to take on flesh and to become a servant, and to humble yourself in being obedient, even obedience by going to the cross for our sake, but not just for eternal life, but also for eternal satisfaction. And you remind us the price of that at this table this morning. Would you meet us at it? 
We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.